You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm super excited for this episode because we've been waiting to have this gentleman on the phone with us. And so I'm excited to welcome Tim Humphrey to talk about driving data adoption. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am really looking forward to it. Happy to be here. Super. So, Tim, before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are, please? Yes. First of all, I have a tagline. I'm a goofy engineer who cares about people. Um, And I've been an engineer for most of my career. And most recently, I've been a leader in our chief data office organization in IBM. And I've been here for four years in this role, working alongside my boss that you had on the show, Paul Bandari. I was brought in specifically to drive the adoption of our cognitive enterprise data platform, as well as partner across the company on various transformation initiatives with data at the core. Super, super. And so I know you gave us a little bit of a teaser, but for those folks who are interested, we did have Interpol on the show, I want to say maybe like three or four podcasts ago. And he was great because he broke down what is data science and what does a chief data officer do and how is the org built and what are the different pieces of the organization that you need if you want to run an enterprise data program, right? And then towards the very end, I realized that that team had a very specific function called data adoption. And me having spoken with a bunch of other executives, realized that that piece is actually missing in a lot of data programs as I speak with other data officers, right? Or just companies that want to be data-driven. And so then we went and asked Interpol if he could like make an introduction to Tim. And then we, you know politely asked Tim to come and join us to explain like what his team is, what does it do, how does it come about, what are some of the lessons that he's learned. So that we're all in for a special treat. So Tim, I'm going to turn this over to you to share your role, your journey, and just like what does adoption actually mean? Yeah, this really gets me excited. Uh, this is a, I live and breathe this. So a little bit about how I got there. I touched on it a little bit, but prior yeah. to joining the chief data office team, I was leading our efforts at IBM to embed artificial intelligence across all of our business processes. And then prior to that, I was uh, leading supply chain analytics. So when we started building up the data office, it was a natural fit for me to come over because I've worked across the company. And that's one thing that's really key when you're talking about adoption is those relationships. So when I came over to the chief data office organization, I had a lot of relationships across the company, which made my job easier. We had decided to build a cognitive enterprise data platform. So think of it as a data lake with attached data services to allow you to do various types of analysis, modeling, support downstream applications and insights, et cetera. So we decided to build this out when Enderpal first came on. That was his vision. Let's let's take our IT landscape and 
we've got systems everywhere generating data everywhere because we operate in 170 countries yep. and have multiple lines of businesses and have done so many different acquisitions and divestitures. We have a fragmented IT landscape by default, which most people listening, if they've been at a company that was around before cloud, they have the same situation. So let's build this data platform to help rationalize that data landscape. So we built it and then it was, okay, how do we drive adoption of this platform? And that's where I came in. Super. So like I said, I've been at this for four years. We've grown from just a, a few users doing data science to supporting every IBMer across the company gets touched by a workload that runs off of our platform. So if you just double click on the word data services, because I know the word services means so many things to so many people, right? And in, at least from what I understood, you actually had to get all the data assets together and then create a platform. And this was a UI that people interacted with. At least that's what I recollect. But it would be great to just break down what do you mean by platform and then what are the services so that people have an idea of like, how does the, let's call it corporate citizen consume these services? Yeah, let's get into that a little bit. So most people are familiar with the concept of a data lake, which yep. is basically taking data from various systems, yep. bringing it into one centralized area for access. So then you can develop your insights, your models, et cetera. Yep. So that's the base concept that we're building on when we talk about our data platform, yep. centralizing the data. And yep. then when I talk about layering on top of that services, this is where we differentiate from a data lake to a data platform. Yep. So most data lakes, you get the data and then you have to move the data somewhere to do your analysis and your modeling, whether you're a data scientist and you're doing some regression models, or if you're more advanced in doing some you know, machine learning, you got to move it. So we wanted to make sure all of your capabilities, whether you're just trying to analyze data, slice and dice to yep. generate some report to an upstream pane of glass or whether you're doing your deep modeling, you can do it all right there in the platform. So we provide all of those tools that I call services. You can think of them as tools as well. Okay. And I know I know the word services is, means a lot to many people. So think about it as you have your capability to analyze, you have your capabilities to model all right there from a platform. And additionally, as we bring together all the data into the data lake, what we've done is certain elements of that we create models that can then provide certain elements to standard to other people trying to do analysis. So it might be a business person downstream that has an application. And instead of going to the source system and then another system that may have two different definitions of a element of data, they can come to us and we rationalize it against the standard. And we're going to provide them one version of data that is the truth and then they can get their analysis. So we try to support all users and also all programs that then come to the platform. Super. And this podcast is for lots of executives and primarily is consumed by executives. So I'm just going to break down when Tim is saying that we had to create a data platform, what a, a Herculean task that was, because for example, if there's like go-to-market, most of the executives that listen to us are go-to-market execs, right? But mm -hmm. if you're a go-to-market exec and you've ever said like, gosh, it would be great if I knew where this customer was in their customer journey and I knew if their accounts receivables were current and I knew that their 
executives were properly taken care of and I knew that there's a four opportunities that they need to buy, you know, those are disparate systems in large organizations and people have to literally, in some case, I'm going to say this on record, but I have to go beg to get access to the data and companies go into this, they call them like customer 360, account intelligence, like there's a different customer master data, like, or master data projects. And they go through this like year long initiatives when multiple teams have to come in and then put the data together. And the problem is only exacerbated because we have amazing marketers who we all love, who are doing list buying from hundreds of vendors. And so you have data coming in, you have data being generated and then data being processed from all dig- a whole bunch of digital properties, if you want to go through that, right? Or tools and digital properties. All of that has to come together. That's why like this initiative that Tim and Indrapal embarked on is required a C-level person because you need to have an individual who has the authority to and the charter or going to enterprise wide, especially at a large company like IBM. So I'll pause if Tim, you wanted to add some more color, but I just wanted to give people the flavor of like what happened, you know? Yeah, yeah. Look, you hit the nail on the head. The experience that we had is we were really good at doing developing insights to answer business questions, to add whatever type of value that was needed in a silo or in a domain, shall I say, right? I ran supply chain analytics. I had good supply chain analytics. Yep. You hit the nail on the head when you said, then when you want to run these cross enterprise types of analytics and insights where you want to know what's the total view of this client, because this client is also our supplier. So you hit it. That's when the things get difficult. What's this client's inventory since in supply chain? What's this client as a supplier? You know, how are we looking at that? That sits over in a procurement organization system. And how are they paying it? And oh, by the way, how are we receiving money? That sits in another system. And all of that, when you start to put together these complex views and these complex, I call them enterprise level insights, like you said, it's, it gets to be almost impossible to stitch it together domain by domain. So you hit the nail on the head. And that was why Interpol had the vision of let's create this platform. And then for certain elements of data, let's go ahead and model it. And then you can get your answers real quick. Yep, totally. And let me unpack the word services a little bit as well for folks, because what normally happens is if I am a go-to-market exec and I need some data work done, right? And the data work could be analysis of a situation, a model that helps me understand what the future may look like, right? Or the futures may look like, like all possibilities, right? And at that point in time, I have to go in and request time on a data science team. Now, this is truth. Nobody's data people are just sitting there idle. They (laughs) are, I feel like, worse than sales ops, which they have lines and lines and lines of activities or tasks that they have to get done because the world thinks that data scientists hold this magic pill that they will tell you exactly what's going to happen with customers and prospects and it will happen, right? So so this is the world, at least today we live in, it was worse before, it's getting better because data science teams are getting integrated into go-to-market teams and people are understanding and learning the skill and the, the discipline and then understanding how to utilize it. But previously you had to go request. And so it really was 
a request form that you had to put in and it became a managed service, right? And so something that, that Tim will actually un- unpack a little bit, at least from what I understand of the situation, Tim, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is you created a platform that was a little bit self-service and then it's a product now, right? And with any go-to-market motion, when you put a product out there, you have to help people adopt it. And so let's unpack that if you may, please. Yes, yes, which is... That's my passion, right? Is uh, how do we how do we do the, sort of the impossible, right? Yes. We you know one person has a, a vision of how the company should run, and yep. how do we get everybody aligned by that? When everybody's got their own agendas, like yep. you said, they've got their yep. own deliverables, they've got yep. their own backlogs, and they have their own strategies, right? So yep. adoption when you're talking about driving the adoption of a platform or some various data initiatives that are going to require people to do things or make changes on systems or make changes to process, because really you can do all the changes and deliver all the insights. If your process doesn't change with it, it's no good. So that is a complex picture. And that is where I really enjoy the challenge of trying to make all that come together in a large enterprise like an IBM. Yep. So I've been doing a lot of transformation efforts throughout my career. And along the way, I don't claim to be some type of change management guru, but I do like to, like most people, go through an experience and figure out what you learned, right? You do a retrospective or back in the day, we called it lessons learned. And I was always focused on that lessons learned. What did we learn on a successful project, a successful problem that we solved or something that we didn't? realized outcomes that we set out to have. So I have this concept of landmines to adoption, (laughs) right? Any type of big effort where it's going to cause people to change what they do, then you are asking them to adopt something new. And there are things that will derail it that I have learned. So I try to stay away from these, I'll call them adoption landmines and Sometimes when I hit one of these landmines, then I quickly go into a bag of tricks to try to remediate those landmines and and keep the project moving forward. Super. And so let's talk just a little bit more about the adoption and if you can give us some metrics, because I think India also talked, I call him India like, for some reason, but like the metrics that he shared was at least at some point there was like X percentage of utilization. And then after the time you guys spent with the teams, there was like Y percentage of utilization. And there was a pretty like, again, I don't want to misquote him. So like, like that's what I'm using X and Y, but there was a pretty big transformation that happened amongst the user base, right? So do you want to take a little bit of of like, tell us a little bit about like what happened with the adoption and maybe you can talk a little bit about like, how did you conduct the adoption? And then let's talk about the landmines if that's okay. Okay, sure. So the adoption journey, our first year when Interpol first had the vision and we created the platform, we had hundreds of users, primarily data scientists that were, working on a particular business problem for a particular business unit, like you described, the people that have the backlog and somebody was asking them to do some work. And then a few a few data analysts mixed in there as well. So we had a few hundred the first year. The next year, we grew to 10,000. The next year, we grew to 100,000. Wow. And then the next year, we basically touched the entire IBM enterprise. So that was the scale of the adoption. I would say the 10,000 to 100,000 was probably the hardest <laughs> in that scale. 
those first few hundred, those are, those were the people that they hear something new and they're attracted to it. Right. So they they wanted to try it out. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those early adopters, that's easy, right? You just got to make sure you keep them happy. Right. So I focus on in that first year, it was, what is your experience? I do a lot of listening, right? A lot of listening. And as long as you're attentive and you understand what their experience is like, boom, you've got them. And then you show them that, you know, this is a journey and you're going to be part of this journey with us and we're going to be flexible, agile and adapt. You've got them, right? Then that next group of, you know, scaling was a little more difficult, right? Because then you're going out and yeah, you can use a mandate. Everybody's going to use the platform, but that really doesn't drive value. So what we tried to focus in is, hey, what are the groups that are really looking at doing major business transformation, major changes to their processes, and how can we help, <laughs> right? There's somebody in that somebody in that business unit, like you said, some executive that's struggling with something, yep. they wish they had information, or they wish yep. their team had insights, right? That's how we went about finding that next batch of users, right? Yep. And then, you know, that next step, I say, it was it was more difficult because right now we're trying to get the scale. <laughs> and when you're trying to get the scale, you're pushing the ball uphill a little bit more. So it was, what are the enterprise level initiatives, the things that are on the minds of our CEOs and our SVPs? And then this is where you really start to hit some of those landmines because they're thinking top line, bottom line, <laughs> and there's no such thing as a barrier. Yep. Right. But then I'm thinking, okay, how do I stitch this information that's needed to get to these insights? And there's a lot of barriers. Right. And so that's where I get into those uh, landmines. So that's that's sort of the journey. Hope that breaks it down. a little bit. it does. I don't want to make it seem like we snapped our fingers and we had scale. It was very hard. (laughs) Well, because the audience is executives and a lot of times I'll take the blame myself, too. We're used to say it and it will be done at some point in time, right? <laughs> and we all understand that there's three types of executives, people that are very inspirational, people that think that we're strategic, but they fall in the strategic bucket, and people that are very operational, right? And I always, at least I'm a firm believer right now, the future executive has to be operational. You're not yes. going to be able to apply yourself to a large organization if you just are not operational, right? And the inspirational guys will be around. But the operational guys are the future because things are just so complex and macroeconomic trends are hitting us all over the place. So I love the fact that you went from like, hey, we implemented this for hundreds of people. And then we went to 10,000. And in a way, this is like how a startup works, right? Like you have something, you started somewhere and then you got to this point. And then by sheer, let's call it advocacy, you know, things start to spread because if one department finds out, says, oh, man. I really need this like expansion <laughs> bottle and Tim has resources. Tim, you're my best friend. Can yep. you help me with this model? Right. And then that's how yep. it starts, quite frankly. Right. Yep. And then, yep. and then you get to point. So, okay. Let's talk about the landmines and I'm sure I'm going to have questions for you because the 10 K to hundred K is super interesting. And maybe we, we touched on this before we go, so I'll take that back. Like what were things that, that you use, like, did you use office hours or did you use like webinars or like, how do you drive the 10K to 100K adoption? Oh yeah. I'm a fan of the super toolbox, right? So let's, let's use everything in the toolbox. So of course, office hours all the time, constantly. Okay. Let's go. One of the biggest tools is showcasing, right? I would say, especially you talked about executives, 
well, we are like have this alpha mindset and we always want to one up somebody. It's very competitive. Yep. So I did a ton of showcases. So guess what happens when you go into a an executive staff meeting and you showcase what another team did? Yep, of course. There's jealousy. Like, a few of those executives can say, we, we could do that, right? Totally. <laughs> we totally. could do that. We could do that. So yes, I use office hours. I use showcasing, okay. listening sessions, feedback sessions. We did... We tried to get our information into various group town halls, all hands meetings, those types of things. We would say, hey, can we be a guest, right? Everybody's always looking for a guest speaker. Let's talk about what's going on. We tried to get, when our CEO would talk, we tried to get get it in her messaging at the time. When other leaders would talk, we tried to get it in their messaging. So we're trying to create an energy in the enterprise around it by whatever means are necessary. And like you said, the best ones were the ones where word of mouth. So this group just talked to somebody else. Yep. And then that group knocks on your door. Hey, what do you have over here? And we're like, oh, yes. <laughs> those were the best ones, right? Because those are the ones that generally put in the lowest amount of effort, but yielded the greatest return, right? All the rest of the things I'm talking about, that's, you know, you got to have office hours. You got to have the right experts. You got to have everybody there. Yep. These listening sessions take time. Then you got to go back and, filter out through them and figure out what you're going to do. So yeah, it was, you name it, we used it. <laughs> and were workshops instrumental at this phase or the previous phase or the phase you're in right now? Or maybe not at all? I will tell you where workshops were the most effective. They were the most effective when we would hit a team that sort of knew they wanted to transform. They knew they wanted to change. They didn't know how, but they had a sort of a vision of, things got to change. I've got a financial challenge or I've got a client challenge or I've got an inefficiency that's showing up somewhere. That's where workshops really, really worked, right? Then we can sit down and we can get all the right people in the room and you know made the mistake a few times of not having all the right people in the room. For example, yep. we're talking about a particular business process and we don't have the people that operated the process, <laughs> in the workshop that, you know, we have the people who are thinking about the future and the strategy, but not the people who are actually doing it every day. So then we can't draw out all the right pain points. Right. So yeah, we did a lot of workshops with a design thinking approach where we would empathy map the operator of a process, the stakeholder or client of a process, be it a process that connected to another internal team or a process that connected to a client. Bring them in, right? Um, I found that people will always share their pain points. <laughs> super. So what you're saying is the workshops were super effective in the zero to one journey. Like, I'm stuck. Please help me. I don't know where to go. And they're like, we don't either, but we can work together. But it's got to be over a period of time that all the right people devote to this problem because it's big enough, you're coming to us, and then let's go through this. And then yeah. you kick-started, yeah. and then from there, you know, you, there's a, there's quite a bit of hand-holding, I'm assuming, that you did for these people. Oh, yeah, yeah. And look, I always say I'm, I'm driving a data platform in an enterprise, but in these workshops, that's secondary. What is your business problem, right? What is the problem? What are the pain points? What are the outcomes you're trying to drive? Where's your vision, right? That's where we start, right? The data platform is secondary, right? It'll, it'll yep, yep. as we get through this, data is going to be at the core. I sort of know, it's like, you know, you know the answer to the test, but yes. you want to focus on what are your problems? And that 
I tell you, sometimes just having, it's almost like uh, you have some ideas and you call a consultant. In some ways, that's a little bit what our team was like, oh, right? It's, it's, it's actually value engineering is the yeah. the discipline that you have to draw from to do what you were you were doing. And, and for the folks who on the phone or who are listening to this, if you don't know what value engineering is, it's one step above sales solutions engineering because solutions engineer are very focused on a specific solution or set of solutions, but value engineers actually work across organizations to solve an industry market problem, right? And so they're not just focused on just a solution and how do I demo and how do I do stuff. Sorry. So again, I just have to break stuff down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's good. We have a lot of aspiring executives who all want to do great things, specifically in transformation, by the way, right? And then, you know, they get into trouble because they say stuff and then they don't know what it means. And I'm like, <laughs> this is what it means, right? And so take this, utilize it, do great things with their and share this with other people, right? So that's how we did. All right, let's go to the landmines now because I think I think we're we've built enough context of like how and why and where and like now let's talk about what are the things to watch out from from your experience. Yeah, there there's several. I'm going to touch on three. I call them big major landmines. One is not invented here. <laughs> that is a a major landmine. And when I say not invented here, that is especially when you get to technical teams. Everybody has pride in what they've built, right? So I've built something that solved a problem or filled filled a gap and I have pride in it. So when you come saying there's a different way, I take it as I didn't I didn't create that. I didn't build that. So that is not invented here. So I'm automatically sort of shutting it out, right? And I'm I automatically either want to ignore it, hope it goes away, or figure out ways to derail it. And the feeling, you know, a lot of people can say, well, Tim, you just, you know, you just tell them this is the way it's going to be. You could, <laughs> but they will work in silence against it, right? So one of the things I like to tell people to put people in the right frame of mind when I talk about this not invented here, it's like calling somebody's baby ugly, right? If you if you have a friend or family member and you, and you don't say, oh, that's a cute baby, if you say, oh, man, that baby, what's wrong with it? That draws a reaction, right? And that is yeah. what we're dealing with. These business processes and these systems and these tools, these pipelines and workloads, they're all created by somebody. And that person that created it, it's their baby. <laughs> so that's one major landmine. The second major landmine that I, I see especially when it comes to data-driven transformation where data is at the core, is having multiple versions of the truth, right? So people do a lot of great engineering work, a lot of good data science work, but they've got too many versions of the truth. There can only be one version of the truth in any team, function, business unit, or company. And this happens all over the place. And a lot of times senior executives are at fault for why this happens, right? I say, when you say, hey, I need this information and you refuse to go to a pane of glass to get it, then the person goes off and gets it however they want and they transform, et cetera, et cetera. And voila, they get it back to you and you run with it, then you cause that problem, right? So we can talk about how to solve that a little bit later. Sure. Yep. And the last landmine that I want to describe is one that I think a lot of people fall into, especially when it comes to data analytics, artificial intelligence, automation is overselling the value, 
right? Projects fail because in the very beginning, a big project's not broken down into its smallest parts with this minimal viable product mentality. Plus, there's not a great business case done up front that really talks about the value that you want to achieve. So it gets blown up, right? (laughs) It gets blown up in people's mind. And as soon as you have an oversold value proposition that maybe you didn't initiate, but maybe it got to that point as people have talked about it and people have gotten excited, you're setting yourself up for failure because you won't hit a metric that then hits that value proposition that somebody has in their head. So you got to be level set about where you're at and what you're trying to achieve. And if you have a big vision, then it's got to be broken down into parts. So those are the three big landmines. There's several others, but those are the big three that I think are like really common, especially in in large enterprise organizations. Man, this last one totally hit home for me. I literally, during lunch, was talking to a friend about a situation and he was like, explain this. And I'm like, we oversold the value like mm-hmm. by a lot, you know, and <laughs> and because we did not do a, even basic business case, right? Like the most basic business case, folks, is like a survey, a poll, a <laughs> attend a few meetings. Those are the, like literally examples of very, very small forms of business case. You can, of course, go into like the multi-page thesis, right? Like they want to create like, but nobody has really time for that, right? So, so even just calling a few people or putting into a group Slack or whatever tool you use, or even just doing a poll or a survey just gives you just a little bit of insight into is the problem real or not, or are we going to sell it? So I'm really glad you said this. This one totally hits home. The other two are super awesome too. I would love to understand how you avoid to have multiple versions of the truth because again, at a large company like IBM, I'm sure you have tons of executives, right? And executives oh, yeah. are paid to know their numbers and make decisions. And so everybody has their favorite dashboard. Well, look, that one, <laughs> that one is hard. That's like, uh, it's like putting out a little fire and then another oh, fire pops up and you try to put that fire. It's like playing whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> like, oh no, we got it. No, no, we got it. I, I tell you, one of the things that I do when I think that this is going to be a problem or I see that this is already a problem. One of the things I do is I try to sit with the most senior leader in that function. And I talk, I try to understand what is their management system? What are their key KPIs and metrics? Right. And really try to understand those things. And then I say, okay, how do you go about getting the information that you need to do your job, but what you, you know, maybe you, whatever piece of the business you're leading, how do you get your information? And that is key, right? I was like, the minute I hear, oh, we, you know, the team rolls up spreadsheets and they send it to me. And, or the minute I hear, we have a review and we all look at the charts and that is just a recipe for disaster. So I tell the, the person, that senior leader, we've got to get everybody looking at a single pane of glass for your most meaningful metrics. And we need to be able to be understand the origin of those numbers that show up on your single pane of glass, right? And, oh, by the way, sometimes this is because of everybody's fear of something showing up red, right? So (laughs) do you have a culture as a leader, when somebody shows you something that's red, do you blow up? (laughs) Do you blow up? Do you turn into this 
mean monster person or do you try to understand what's causing it and how you can help fix it and how you can help get a metric from red to yellow to green? Like, how do you treat that? And it's funny, the psychology of that alone is powerful for an organization and for a leader to think about, right? And I'll admit, I've been this way before. (laughs) I've been under the pressure that maybe my team isn't feeling and then I see something going wrong and I'm like, you know, I want to jump out my skin, but that doesn't create the culture where you stop this multiple versions of the truth. So I think it's a big one. It starts with, it starts with the senior most leader, how they manage, what do they look at, and then their reactions, their emotions to data and how they work with their team. That is at its core because you can do all the engineering you want. If you don't change that, you'll never fix that one. Do you guys use the, at least do you specifically use the word single pane of glass? Uh, I do. I don't think okay. it's pretty I'll, common. No, no, no. I'll, I'll say that because do you know a gentleman by the name of Glenn Dittrich by any chance from IBM? I do not. I do not. Okay. Glenn, Glenn, wait, wait a second. What was his last name? Uh, Dittrich. Uh, D-I-T-T-R-I-C-H. No. He's a partner in the Talent and Transformation. Okay. Uh, no, I don't know him. Okay. <laughs> it's because he's from IBM. And when I met him, he told me about the single pane of glass and how we need to like focus on we're getting a single pane of glass. And I was like, man, is everybody at IBM like using the single pane of glass? <laughs> I don't think so. It's something that I say quite often. Just okay, this is going back to my days of uh, being in software development. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. No, I'm, I'm with, I, I agree with everything that you that you said, by, by the way, because it's important. And the right approach, ladies and gentlemen, is really to go to the senior most exec in that function and then work with them. Because even at the level that they're working, they may not realize how big of a problem this is. And then, you know, work through this. And again, I'll say this because this is just a public service announcement, right? A lot of people want to understand how to become senior executives and how do they journey on to the executive journeys, right? Like move up on the executive journeys. It is my firm belief that the level of executive you will become is the level of executive you have trained to support. And it could be emotional support. It could be intelligence support. It could just, it's just support, right? Because if you have only learned how to support $50 million executives, you are not going to be invited to the $500 million table. It just does won't work, right? But you have to learn how to support people and understand quickly and empathize with them on their problems and then come up with ways that you can partner on because that's what all, what being an executive is all about. Sorry, I just wanted to digress a little bit because this is I really important. I digress because you, you touched on something that is so important here. And I want to digress away from this adoption and executive piece for a minute. I do a lecture with executive MBA students annually. And one of the exercises I do, and it touches on what you said, is I talk about some leaders that I've had the pleasure to work for throughout my career and, you know, how great they were. And then I say, hey, everybody in the class, please take a post-it note and write down, think of your, visualize who those leaders are that really had an impact on you and how you felt showing up to work that, you know, sort of made you want to run through a brick wall to use that analogy. Yep. Write down at an attribute about them on a post-it note and just write down three attributes on a total of three post-it notes. And then I go into talking about EQ, emotional intelligence, and IQ. 
And then after we've had that talk and everybody understands it, I put up in the room a big piece of paper or, or multiple whiteboards. And one, I draw a circle that says EQ. One, I draw a circle that says IQ. The other one, I draw a circle that says technical skills. And I tell people to put your post-it note where you think it fits. Yep. And like clockwork, the EQ post, the EQ whiteboard is full. The IQ has a few things on it, a few post-its, and the technical skills has a few post-its. But the EQ whiteboard is full. And I think that's a lesson. You're talking about people aspiring to be an executive. You have to have high EQ. 100%. 100%. And the journey together is going to go way, way, way further than the journey alone. And being an executive is all about partnering, right? It's not about the, the single journey. And it's interesting because... Like, you know, and there's a lot of people that are first-time VPs and second-time VPs that listen to this thing. And and they all aspire to do great things. And sometimes it's actually okay to do the things that you're already doing. You know, it's totally okay. <laughs> and, and you can just let the rest of the stuff come to you. But if you do aspire to, again, be a large enterprise executive, you have to learn how to go and support those people and some of the simplest ways are just like, you know, I'll give people a secret. Just invite them to a podcast, you know. You literally <laughs> learn about how they want to how they want to work because there's something that's always shared and you have to share activities with them and goals and and things yes. like that. And then you you'll get to that point. But this is a really important point, especially in transformation initiatives, which is what we're talking about. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So I know you wanted to talk a little bit about your story in STEM and like helping youth that are interested in STEM. So I'd love to like just segue this to that because the journey we're talking about is just exec to super exec, right? But there's also the rep to exec or even like not rep to rep basically too. So let's unpack that for a second. Yeah, look, this is why I get I get really passionate about this. You thought I got worked up about adoption. When I talk about youth, when I talk about STEM and diversity, I really get excited. Look, my personal journey is I always tell people I shouldn't be here. I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. I shouldn't be here. I, I came from an area where we had a lot of crime, a lot of violence, a lot of drugs. And, you know, as I was growing up, I saw my friends get killed. I saw them get shot. I've seen them, you know, go to jail, not graduate high school, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. The list goes on. But I was very fortunate to not be part of, of that path. And one of the things that I think about is why I'm here today is I had no examples of some of the careers that were actually available to me. When I was young, yeah, I wanted to be a basketball player. I'm pretty tall. People can't tell from my voice, but I'm pretty tall. I'm 6'4". I, was, I loved basketball. I thought I was going to play for the Lakers. And this is what I aspired to be because that was all I see. I didn't have examples of data scientists or software developers or these other types of roles around me. So, you know, I always say you can't be what you can't see. But luckily in high school, I had a guidance counselor that introduced me to engineering and I went on this path to become an engineer and it opened up several doors for me. And I think that, you know, we have an opportunity, us leaders here, to really change the narrative for a large group of our society by making STEM jobs and STEM careers visible, 
doing what we're doing right now, talking about <laughs> talking yeah. about STEM yeah. in an exciting way because yeah. it is exciting, right? It's just it's just as exciting as when I would hit a, a key basketball shot in a game, right? This yeah. is exciting. So I always say, you know, these if we can attract people into STEM jobs and into STEM careers, then they have a path to generational wealth, right? Yes, 100%. And they change the cycle of poverty and we can improve society. And I think it's something that we don't do. And I think the flip side of it is we need to do it for our own selfish needs, right? There are jobs in STEM that go unfilled every single year. I believe there was 500,000 cybersecurity jobs that went unfilled. So what does that tell us? Hey, we've got to go after non-traditional sources and channels to create the workforce. And I, I really encourage people to go after some of these skills that sit out there where maybe we have to upskill people. That's okay. Or maybe they're coming through a different channel. Maybe they're not coming from a prestigious university. Maybe they're coming from a community college or, you know, maybe they're a veteran that has served and looking to restart their career. I think all of those pathways are good. And I also say as leaders, we've got to talk about this stuff with passion, right? We've got to make these STEM careers like me, these conversations that me or you yep. are having, we've got to have them publicly. We got to have them passionately, and we got to make these STEM careers sexy. They got to yep. be like the Beyonce of the career world. Yep, yep, no, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the listeners would want this to be the Taylor Swift of the career world, but that's what you're trying to, you know, like, like well, this is for pick, pick your superstar you're celebrity. Star, exactly, you know, totally. <laughs> Well, that's what we need to make these conversations exactly. like. No, and, you know, like what I love about this conversation is like we're talking about like, forgive me for saying this, but the nerdiest of like disciplines in all of STEM, like data science, like this is like applied mathematics, right? Like that's that or if it applied statistics, right? Like, like and we're, we're having fun with this because the impact is org wide. It's like the impact of these projects helps people get better at selling help people get better delivering products and services to their customers. This is actually helping people get to a spot where they can then earn generational wealth. I love the fact that you said that because we did a podcast a couple of, maybe last quarter, on what does it actually mean to be generational to get to generational wealth through sales, right? And most Mm -hmm. people just get a commission check, it's thrown out, it's like they buy all these things that they don't really invest. And so we actually unpack like, what can you specifically do as a salesperson in business to get to that point? And there's so many different things, right? Like you can invest in startups now. You can go invest in a fund. You can do this. Lots and lots and lots of things. So for the listeners, if you care about the specific topic of like personal financial freedom, then please listen to the podcast on personal success that we did last quarter or so. And I think this it was a CRO of Pax8, I think, who was actually on that. That's a great topic. I'm glad that you do that because that's another thing I always say. I'm very fortunate. When I started my career as an engineer in the lab developing hardware for computers, yep. I had a few people around me to give me some good advice financially or else I would have been just like what you're saying. I would have been spending my money buying drinks at the club for somebody and not thinking about saving and not thinking about 401ks and all of these other things that you're going to need later in life because I was just happy to be here. <laughs> like you well, said. Well, Tim, 
I'm pretty sure both of us have bought drinks for people in the club. So <laughs> you know, I'm pretty sure that happened, but we did not go overboard with it. And there was a time and, and place to enjoy all of that. So, all right. I know we have some time left in this podcast, but I would love for you to share a resource that people can use post this podcast, whether it's a book, a blog, a newsletter, a website, a video, just something that our listeners can take away. So one great read for all the listeners, I would tell you, is a book called Our Iceberg is Melting. It's by John Cotter. This is a phenomenal book. And I actually read this book a long time ago, well before I was in this job, but it's so relevant to the topic we're having. It is written at a child's level, but it's for leaders in business. And it's about this group of penguins that their iceberg is melting. And they, for penguins and your iceberg is melting, that is, that is a critical problem. (laughs) And all of the penguins have personalities and they all, it's like their journey to figure out what they're going to do. And I tell you, after you read this book, when you go back into your workplace, as people talk, you will give them the penguins' names. And I'll tell you, just a one little teaser. I don't want to spoil it. because sure. it's, hey, it's hey. actually, a, like I said, it's written at a children's level. It's a quick read. But there's one penguin called No-No. <laughs> and that is his name. And you can guess what he does every time they're trying to figure out their path forward. He says no. And that's his name. His penguin name is No-No. And so I walk around sometimes, and I've been various sessions whether it's in the company or whether it's with some of the board work that I do or nonprofit work or advising of companies. And I I can always spot the no, no. (laughs) It's a great resource. If you're trying to, if you're trying to understand personalities and the psychology around change management, really great book. Well, super. I'm sure people will take a read of this, especially those who have watched happy feed with their kids, you know? (laughs) All right. So let's go to the next question. The way this podcast works is like we have amazing guests who then recommend other guests that we can learn from, whether it's about go-to-market or data science, because that's what we're focused on this podcast, right? Everybody in B2B, and you came in like that, right? Like we had Indra Paul on, on, and then we asked him like if we could get referred to you. Are there two or three other leaders in B2B tech that are either focused on go-to-market or data science that you'd recommend we bring onto the show? Absolutely. I have a good friend over at uh, Newzella, the ed tech company, who's the CTO over there, Derek Ware. He has a, a phenomenal background and has worked at several companies, large, small. So he brings a wealth of insight. And he's another one of these non-traditional paths. He started his career after serving in the armed forces. So I think he'd be great on this show. And he has a really non-traditional path, but a ton of great experience So I think he'd be great. Another person I'd recommend is Seth Dobrin. He is IBM's chief AI officer, uh, which is a role that we're starting to see more and more of in industry. So I think he'd be a great guest here. He's a good partner for me, and we work on several initiatives in the company. Got a ton of insight. And then the last person I would say is a gentleman by the name of Anshul Shapori. He's another IBMer. He is the chief technology officer for our human resources. And when I talk about some of these things that we've done and driving adoption, he's been a great partner for me because one of the things that I said 
that goes on this platform or various 360 degree data models, we have one around the workforce that drives a ton of workloads and insights across the company. And he's been like me, he's been in the data analytics AI space for a long time. Super, super. That's great. Last but not the least, if folks wanted to get in touch with you, what would be the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, Two ways. LinkedIn. I'm Timothy Humphrey on LinkedIn. That is one way to get in touch with me. Also, follow me on Twitter at Timothy Humphrey. Two ways to get in touch with me, and I'd love to hear from all of your listeners. Super. Well, I always make this public service announcement that if you're going to hit up an executive, please be specific in your ask so that they can actually do something about it. If you send them a vague email, don't expect a response because executives (laughs) are trained not to respond to vague emails. So just putting that out there. But Tim, this was fantastic. And it was such a treat. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and explaining to us these concepts. We wish you the best of luck in your journey. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you what you're doing for our industry and for future leaders. I am glad to be part of it. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV. 